Let's say you're caught shoplifting in a big box retailer. You're taken to a back room and you're offered the option to pay $400 to $500 to a company for a quote-unquote restorative justice class, or you cannot pay the money and have the case referred to the police. What would you do? So, yeah, private companies are now contracting with retailers to take shoplifting adjudication out of the criminal legal system. So what happens is a person is caught shoplifting in a retailer that works for one of these companies, and that person is given the option to have the case referred to prosecution or to participate in a restorative justice class run by one of the companies. The kicker is that these classes do cost around $400 to $500. So today I'm going to talk to John Rappaport about this model. He's an assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago, and we're going to talk about whether or not this is a good development. And the first question I asked him was what caught his eye about the biggest of these companies, the Corrective Education Company. I don't know, I saw an article in Slate, I think, that said, uh, you know, caught shoplifting, you know, pay $300 and Bloomingdale's will let you off or something like that. And yeah, I just thought, wow, that's not how I thought the criminal justice system worked. Let me learn more about this. And um, I think what pulled me in is this. Um, I, I, I read about what they're doing. I think I, my first reactions were the same reactions that many people have, which are, wow, this seems kind of coercive and it seems like you don't have any other choice. And it seems like this company is just, you know, making money off of these poor people. Um, But then I started thinking about the dozens, if not hundreds of articles that I've read in the course of my research, criticizing the public criminal justice system and how erratic and how incredibly draconian it is and how severe uh, the consequences of not just being convicted, but even being arrested can be. And these companies are allowing people to uh, uh, settle, you know, to take care of the shoplifting allegations against them um, without coming into any contact with the criminal justice system. And, And then I had the thought, wow, if I were ever caught shoplifting, I would pray that it was in a retailer that used one of these companies because there's no doubt in my mind uh, that I would rather pay uh, four or $500 and and take this uh, corrective education class than be arrested um, and have that permanent mark on my record. Now, I I fully recognize that I say that, um, you know, uh, coming from a, a particular position in society um, I have the poor $500 to pay. Um, I have the type of livelihood where uh, an arrest would be, you know, potentially really harmful. And so other people might have a different calculus. Um, but at the very least, it suggested to me that um, the story is a lot more complicated than I think some of the uh, early coverage of these companies um, made it out to be. Uh, so can we talk exact like? about how exactly CEC works. So you mentioned they work for big box retailers. That's generally who they partner with. Yes. What, and what, who are we talking about there? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I have a list here and I should, I should, um, uh, give the disclaimer that, you know, these relationships are dynamic. And so, uh, uh, these are companies that I know have, um, at least at one point collaborated with or contracted with these um, companies like CEC. Uh, but that's not necessarily to say that they are presently in a business relationship with CEC, um, but they include Walmart, Bloomingdale's, DSW, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch, Burlington Coat Factory, Whole Foods, American Apparel, which I think is now out of business, um, Goodwill Industries, uh, Sports Chalet, Kroger's, H&M and Sportsman's Warehouse. So, I mean, they're really uh, big players here. Yeah. And so how does CEC get, and, I, and when, I should note that when I say CEC, I know they have a few competitors. They're sort of the dominant player. So I'm, I'm sort of using them as a representative of the, of the industry. But um, so how do they, uh, why don't you just walk us through, someone is caught in an H&M or fill in the blank shoplifting. What happens next and how does CEC get involved? Sure, sure. Um, okay, so the first important thing to realize is that store security is still handled by the store and CEC has nothing to do with that. Um, and I'm gonna use the same uh, custom here that you are where we're gonna just talk about CEC but it's kind of a, a placeholder for uh, a, a, a number of businesses. So um, CEC does not monitor the store. CEC does not have a physical presence in the store. Um, store security is the same as it's always been. It's usually, uh, they're either store employees or, or the store contracts with some private security firm um, to monitor the store. Um, and so if someone's gonna be picked up uh, for uh, shoplifting, they're picked up by one of these um, security guards who, who works for the store. And you know it typically goes like this. Uh, uh, the security guard will bring the suspect back to some private room, uh, it might be called a security office or a loss prevention office or something like this. And they will ask for identification and they will run a criminal history check and basically screen the person for eligibility to uh, participate in CEC's program. And who determines who's eligible? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So um, the, the retailer does, um, but it's sort of at the wholesale, at the corporate level. So the retailer, when it enters into the relationship with CEC, it designates um, eligibility criteria. So this could be things like age, um, like the value of the item that was um, allegedly stolen, and I think maybe most importantly, um, criminal history. So uh, a retailer might say, well, anyone who has um, a conviction or anyone who has an arrest record, they can't qualify um, okay. with CEC. And the retailer, uh, CEC rather, actually tells me um, that the retailers are, are not allowed to include characteristics, um, which you would hope they would not be allowed to include, uh, like race, gender, nationality, language ability, or things like that. And when you say CEC tells me, you mean like you've interviewed them yes. for your paper? Okay. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, I, I've spoken with the CEO um, of CEC, and they told me that these are not among the criteria. But it's it's largely, I think, criminal history, age, and, and the value of the item. I get the sense that those are the um, most important factors. And those are set, as I said, sort of at the corporate level. And so the actual security guard 
who has picked up this uh, suspected shoplifter um, does not have discretion. They basically enter uh, the person's name or swipe their driver's license or whatever the technology is and um, some a few other pieces of information like what they're suspected of having stolen um, and then they get back you know a, a, a green light or a, a red light um, which means either okay go ahead down the CEC track or you can't go down the CEC track so do whatever you're gonna do call the police or not according to corporate policy Okay, um, so if they get the green light and this person is potentially eligible, which means, you know, they're not too young, they're not too old, they didn't steal something too valuable and they don't have uh, too serious of a criminal history, um, then they're given the option to watch a video um, that CEC created that basically explains um, the company's program, which they call uh, a restorative justice program. And they're told, the suspect is told at this point that uh, if they choose you know, not to go with CEC, uh, not to sign up and complete the program, then um, the matter will just be uh, handled by the retailer and the retailer uh, may pursue you know, whatever legal rights it has to resolve this crime. So there's not a, a, you know, a direct threat. <laughs> if you do not sign up, we will call the police. Um, it's basically just, if you choose not to sign up, the retailer will do whatever it's going to do. And that, I think, the inference is that could include calling the police, but we're not going to say. And and then uh, after watching this video, you know, the suspect is asked uh, whether they want to sign up. And they're told the cost. Uh, and if they sign up, if they, if they indicate that they want to sign up, they sign a contract. They actually don't have to pay anything at that moment. They have uh, three days to think it over. And the idea is that, you know, you can talk to your family, you can talk to a lawyer if you have access to a lawyer and think it over. And if you still decide you want to go forward with CEC, then you pay a $50 deposit and then uh, you start the program. And uh, at any point, if you want to back out, you can back out. Of course, if you back out, then the matter gets referred back to the retailer and the retailer can pursue whatever legal rights it has, again, meaning the retailer can choose to call the police if it wants to. And when you and, sign, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, and, and, and then when you sign this contract, um, basically what it says is that if you uh, pay the fee and you complete the program successfully, then the retailer will consider the matter closed for all purposes. Uh, so the retailer promises not to pursue the matter with law enforcement, uh, and not to seek civil recovery. But, you know, the contract cautions, I think, as, as it has to, um, that, you know, law enforcement is not actually bound by the agreement. Um, and so if the police somehow found out about this particular offense, they could decide to prosecute you. They're not bound by the contract. Although CEC does say we'll refund you your, your four or $500 if you get prosecuted. It's interesting. Um... So one thing on the contract before uh, moving on is um, they do not have to admit guilt in the contract, right? I think they used to and they no longer have to. That's right. You know, this has um, evolved over time. So if you just go on the Internet and you you Google this and you read some of the articles that come up, you know, it's important to pay attention to, to when they were written. And the earliest versions 
of the CEC program did require people to admit um, guilt, essentially admit, you know, that they that they did the thing they're accused of having done. And I think in response to the litigation that we can talk about later, um, CEC has been sued in California by the city of San Francisco. Um, I think in response to that litigation, uh, CEC made some changes, I think, to try to frankly, you know, make themselves look better, um, make make the situation look um, the least coercive uh, uh, that they could. And that included dropping this idea that that people had to um, admit guilt. So you're just choosing to engage in this transaction where I, I pay you, I take this class, and you agree not to pursue the matter with law enforcement. It's interesting. I, don't, I actually don't know um, whether or not this is the case, but it seems to me like you shouldn't be allowed to pay people. Like, if I um, assaulted someone on the street, like, I shouldn't mm-hmm. be allowed to pay the victim to not cooperate with the police, which is sort of what the contract implies. And I don't know if you've uh, seen any of that in the litigation. I, I haven't seen that line of argument before, um, or whether or not that's even illegal. I, I'm not sure. Or not illegal, but you know what I mean. Not yeah. Policy. Well, there's a couple different ways to think about this question. I mean, in the example that you just gave, it sounds like, um, you know, it's the offender's idea um, rather than the victim's idea. Mm. You might think about it differently. So if the victim uh, comes to the offender and says, hey, you just assaulted me. Pay me $10,000 or I'm going to call the police. Well, that sounds like blackmail. Right. Uh, we can talk more about blackmail later if you want, but that sounds like blackmail. If the offender says, hey, you know, um, I'm really sorry about what I did, um, and I, I really don't want uh, to, to get in trouble with the law, um, if I gave you $10,000, would that, you know, make you feel better and, and make you disinclined to, to, to cooperate with the police? I, you know, I'm not sure that we would... Um, say that that's illegal, or I, I certainly don't think it's blackmail when it's initiated by um, by the offender. Now, there is a line of argument out there that, that you know, um, the state has the sort of monopoly on the criminal law, and so it is um, always necessarily the state's choice about whether to um, pursue a particular uh, crime, to pursue, you know, charges in a particular case, and these kinds of um, arrangements out of court are, you know, usurping the authority of the state. I'm not sure that argument really holds up if you think about it. We don't have um, a general duty to report crime, right? Right. So if I observe a crime um, and, you know, unless I report it, it's going to go um, undetected by the state and and, and unprosecuted. I, I don't have any duty. Um, I certainly don't have a legal duty, and, and in our society, I don't even think I really have a moral duty um, to report the crime. Um, and we know, uh, uh, if you think about think about like an old timey movie where um, you know the the neighborhood rascal spray paints the the windows of the local diner, and the you know the owner comes out and says, "I know it was you." I'm going to call the cops, and and then the the you know the boy's mother says, oh please don't call the cops, and then he says, okay, well, you're going to wash dishes for the next week, right? And and um, 
and that's how we'll work this out. I think we actually think that's kind of a good thing. At least I do. Right. Um, I guess it's I just for, Yeah, go ahead. From a policy perspective, the idea of being able to contract away mm-hmm. your rights to participate in the criminal system seem um, seem like something we wouldn't want to extend, right? Like, so for a big retailer, it might not be a problem, um, but I could see a world in which uh, victims of crime end up uh, th- permitting people to contract away their right to participate in the criminal justice system could end up putting you know victims of crime who are more vulnerable in a really bad spot. And as a policy reason, mm-hmm, therefore, mm-hmm. We, we would prevent those kinds of contracts from being enforced. But I, I don't... I, that's all I got. I haven't read any, I haven't seen any arguments on it or, or read any law. Yeah, I mean, one concern in the blackmail literature is that you're going to get um, sort of under enforcement or under deterrence because um, uh, people are going to settle for too little, basically. So, you know, if you think in a sort of economic framework, um, uh, I commit an assault and that inflicts you know, um, $100,000 worth of damage to the other individual. Um, but then, uh, you know, I have them contract away uh, their their um, right to, to pursue the case with the police uh, for, you know, $10,000, because that sounds like a lot of money to them. Um, but I'm, you know, basically under deterred because, you know, the, the, the appropriate penalty for me to deter me was, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or more, maybe. Um, but I got away um, with this, you know, what to me feels like a low penalty. To the victim, feels like a, you know, a windfall. Um, right. And so it's sort of bad for society. It has a negative uh, spillover effect on my future victims, who I will now assault because I've learned that the penalty for assaulting people is too low. Um, so yeah, there are these kinds of arguments. Um, in the literature, and it is something to be wary of. And so to some extent, um, you know, my comfort with the arrangements we see here is very context dependent. Um, It it depends a lot on um, the nature of the victim. Uh, The victim in this case is a major retailer, and that, that is definitely part of the calculus for me. So we got kind of stuck on the contract. Um, So let's move forward uh, a little bit in what these programs look like. So let's say someone signs the contract. Um, Then what do those restorative justice programs or classes look like? Yeah, so I wish I knew more. I mentioned earlier that I have interviewed someone from CEC and and also one of their uh, principal competitors. I've actually asked, hey, can I see the the class materials, and I, I I actually wasn't told no, but I haven't seen them yet. So I, I haven't taken the class or, or um, uh, uh, seen the class materials myself, but I can tell you what I know, which is that um, it's it's they call it a restorative justice class. It's um, basically something you can do online uh, in six to eight hours. Um, they say it was developed by a clinical psychologist, and it and this is their words, it, it focuses on helping accused shoplifters develop life skills so that they are less likely to reoffend in the future. Um, and they give this account on their website 
um, that I find quite striking. So if you'll indulge me, I'll just read a few sentences here from, from, their own, from CEC's website. They say, there's a chapter that helps them understand what could have happened if they'd gone through the traditional process. Um, but after that, we give them skills and the ability to actually go out and get a job. These people that are getting apprehended typically haven't been taught the life principles of how to build a resume, how to be presentable in an interview. They haven't been given the skills to understand what a budget is, never mind how to manage their money. So as they're going through the course, the restorative justice course, uh, they build their own resume, they build their own budget, a workout plan, an eating plan. End quote. Um, okay, so let's unpack that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it seems to me like there's a lot of assumptions about CEC's, um, you know, client base or the people yeah. enrolled in this program. Uh, do, do you know, do we know anything about the folks who are, um, who end up being enrolled in CEC's program? We don't. Okay. Um, we really don't. Uh, you know, we can try to take baby steps toward making inferences. So for example, we can observe that um, CEC has worked with um, Walmart, which is um, you know not a necessarily a, a high-end retailer, uh, but it's also worked with Bloomingdale's, um, which is. Um, we also have a statistic that comes from CEC itself that 90% of the people who are offered the chance to enroll do so. Um, but we don't know other facts like uh, which Walmarts, which Bloomingdale's, which Abercrombie's, which 90%. And so, uh, and we certainly don't have granular statistics like uh, uh, this is, you know, the demographics of our uh, population. Um, we don't know these things. Yeah. So, um, wh what to you seems. I guess problematic about that description. Uh, so to me, it just it, it seems like it. Well, uh, let me let me make two points. I mean, one is the one I think you were sort of hinting at, which is that um, wow, it seems to paint the uh, uh, student, and I'm doing scare quotes uh, around student population um, of CEC with uh, a pretty broad brush, and it's not even necessarily one that matches. Uh, the data we talked about earlier uh, about who shoplifters are. It tends not to be, you know, people who are really sort of low class and uneducated. It's, it's more of a sort of a middle class crime uh, in some senses. So I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical of this claim that, you know, these are people who haven't been taught the life principles of how to build a resume or how to be presentable in an interview. And, and, and some of these other things. I'm also quite skeptical that if those descriptions are true, that a program like this, a six to eight hour online program could really make that much of a difference. I mean, I've been trying to you know, change my uh, uh, eating plan for <laughs> years uh, and it's really, really hard. Um, and in general, you know, rehabilitation, so to speak, is really really hard, um, and so I'm I'm skeptical um, that the program could make that big of a change in people's lives, um, and so I guess in my view, you know, 
part of the problem here is is maybe just a lot of overclaiming. Like if they had made much more modest claims about what they tried to accomplish through this program, you know, something like, hey, we tried to help people understand, uh, you know, the first sentence, you know, what they what what could have happened if they had gone through the traditional process. Okay, that seems reasonable. Um, you know, helping people understand some people sometimes feel like shoplifting is a so-called victimless crime. So maybe trying to help them understand how, you know, shoplifting really hurts everyone because it it tends to raise prices. Things like this, uh, uh, I could I could believe. But the idea that you're going to, you know, help people get a job and work out and eat differently in a six to eight hour online class just seems like quite a stretch to me. Right. It, it, it struck me actually in looking at um, their website, which is quite sparse, sparse. I never know what to say. Um, <laughs> you know, there's not much information on it. Let's put it that way. And yeah. I, I wonder it's in part because um, the, the people that they are advertising to are not actually the users, right? They're, my sense is that they're advertising to um, pro- probably VC funders and potential retailers who are their um, kind of their actual customer, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. absolutely. And so, um, you know, I'm always skeptical of anything that starts with like these people. But it, yeah. I, that might help to explain the tone of it uh, because it is it's striking. That, that seems right to me. And, and let me put this point you know, in context, at least as I see it. Um, so you know, in my paper, I come out um, sort of generally supportive of these programs. I, I, I point out some, you know, um, um, places where I think we should be really cautious, um, uh, and things I think ways in which I think we might want to regulate these companies. But I, I'm certainly not taking the, this, the position that this should be prohibited. Um, probably closer to the opposite. Um, but the the restorative justice class itself is not doing a lot of the work. Yeah. To get me to that position, what's doing a lot of the work uh, is that you're basically keeping people out of the criminal justice system uh, and that you're deterring them. I mean, uh, I guess to me, a decent analogy is like traffic school. What is traffic school? I've been fortunate enough never to have gone to traffic school. But my understanding is that in some states, um, if you get certain kinds of tickets and you want to keep the points off your license to keep your insurance premiums from going up, you can agree to go to traffic school, which is basically uh, a, a class provided by a private vendor, and you pay, and it teaches you, you know, defensive driving or traffic safety or something like this. I, maybe I'm just too cynical of a person, but I kind of doubt that people learn all that much in traffic school. I think it's like it's part of the deterrent mechanism. Okay, so you said that the classes don't do a lot of work for you. Um, yeah. And getting you to to feel like this these might be a good thing. Uh, yeah. What so let's talk about what are some of the things that you that are that you put in the plus column. I mean, the, the main thing is is uh, I, okay. So the main thing I used to be a public defender, so um, I, I I do have you know the suspects I think um, at the, at the foreground when I think through this and. It's just the simple fact that this is a, a way to keep people 
um, from coming into contact with the criminal justice system at all. And, um, you know, diversion programs have been around for a while. So there are, have been courts um, before CEC ever existed that would have diversion programs for shoplifters um, where they'd say, okay, instead of um, uh, um, sending you to jail, we'll send you to this um, uh, sort of corrective education type of program as an, that's, that's run sort of as an adjunct to the court system. Um, and that's good. That's better than sending them to jail. But they're still arrested and they're still in the system and they still have this sort of eternal criminal record of some sort. Um, and there's a lot of research showing how harmful that is. You know, as soon as you're arrested, you're you're subjected to a, a, a full search. You're at least temporarily you're, you're booked and you're probably temporarily locked up, at least until they're ready to release you. Um, that has physical dangers, it has exposure to disease, uh, and there's all sorts of collateral consequences from being uh, arrested. It can affect future employment and housing and all of these things. And there's a ton of literature about this. And to me, the biggest plus in the plus column is um, a way to keep people from uh, incurring those consequences from what is relatively minor um, criminal conduct. Now, other and isn't there? Oh, sorry, before we move on from that, isn't yeah. there something about the diversion programs that they're, you know, open, they're transparent, you know what to expect. It's a public actor putting you through those programs. I mean, how would you respond to those sort of transparency or there's those arguments that there's a value in transparency? I don't know. I'm, I'm not that persuaded. So, I mean, if we look at the diversion programs, I mean, so here, here's an analog. I don't know if you've seen any of the literature on um, you know, so-called private probation. Yeah. Um, these are private companies that operate um, as an adjunct to the public court system. Um, and the public court system basically uh, you know, contracts with them and then hands off uh, probationers to be sort of monitored by these private companies instead of by a traditional public um, probation office. Uh, and from what I can tell, they're awful. And they're not especially transparent. And the only reason we know things about them is because of good investigative reporting. Um, I, I just don't see any reason to think that if CEC were doing its thing and getting its, its customers, so to speak, um, uh, by referral from a, a judge rather than referral from a retailer that the world would look that different. I think one way in which the world would look different is all of those customers would have arrest records now. So, you know, while I can't say there's sort of zero value to the transparency, I'm skeptical that there's great value. And I know that there's something really detrimental that goes along with that, um, with that transparency, which is the arrest record. And so just on the on the topic of private probation, it sort of triggered for me a thought that uh, whenever you introduce sort of private uh, profit interest into the criminal justice system, it seems uh, people get screwed, right? Um, the maggots are in the food in prison and, and people are sort of trapped in these private probation systems. So I wonder if you worry about um, that effect creeping in in these sort of private adjudication systems as well? So I do. 
I do worry. I think one way to conceive of my project is to say that's a little too general, uh, the way you put the point that whenever the profit motive creeps into the criminal justice system, the consequences are bad. Um, and I think it might depend a little bit on the context. Um, so I've, I will tell you that I've seen um, sort of little favorable coverage of private probation companies, although maybe that work is still to come and I just haven't seen it. I, I have actually read some of the literature on, on private prisons and I, my sense is it's, it's more mixed than a lot of criminal justice reformers um, want to admit um, in terms of, you know, just are, are conditions better or worse uh, in private facilities? Do private facilities have stronger or weaker incentives to fill the beds than public prison guard unions have and so on? So for let's let's put it this way. Uh, for the type of person who used to be a public defender, I think I'm a little more friendly uh, to privatization than, than some other people are. And in this particular context, um, I think you need to look more carefully at, at the incentives. I think it depends on the contract, right? Like, I think um, if the prison contracts said, um, the first time we find a maggot in the food, we will terminate this contract, you probably wouldn't have maggots in the food. Um, so I don't know that the problems adhere to the sort of public-private relationship as opposed to the particular incentives that are created by the contracts. Now and that's interesting because the it seems to me that the incentives in this case are 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 quite different. Maybe that's where you're going, where the um, the retailers don't actually get a kickback on the number of people that they refer. Is that right? Yes. So yes, that's exactly where I was going to go next. So in the earliest version of CEC, the retailers would get what I call in the paper a kickback, what I think they called restitution. Uh, so basically the, the, the suspect pays the four or $500 to CEC and then CEC cuts a check to the retailer. And that system of incentives troubled a lot of people. And a lot of people looked at that and they said, okay, well now the retailer has the incentive to pick up more suspects because each suspect has, you know, a check attached to him. And I think there's something to that. To be honest, I think it's still a little bit overly simplistic. I think the the price tag on these kickbacks was something, I think the figure I saw was $40. That was my recollection too, yeah. And I wonder whether it doesn't cost more than $40 in sort of private security time to process uh, mm -hmm. each suspect, but putting that aside, I get the point. And there, yes, I see that incentive and it seems potentially troubling. Um, I still, I still think you should pay attention to the, you know, the numbers attached to the dollar signs, but, but yes, it seems pot potentially troubling, but now, you know, the retailer is not, uh, uh, collecting any money per suspect. Um, so they're just paying private security. Private security is monitoring the premises, picking up people for shoplifting, and referring some of them uh, to CEC, and then CEC makes money off of it. But CEC, as I said a long time ago, you know, doesn't have a physical presence. They're not there, you know, pointing out shoplifting suspects to the to the security guards. Um, they're sort of passively receiving um, referrals. And while I'm not going to say that there's sort of no chance 
that the profit motive could create perverse incentives here, I see a lot less danger here um, than I think we see in um, like the private probation context or some of what's been called, you know, for-profit policing or some of these other contexts. And um, I cut you off a little while ago as you were headed into some more of the sort of items you would put in your plus column. Yeah. Is there anything so, we haven't talked about? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, um, look, the, the, the retailers like it. Um, the retailers say working with the police is surprisingly burdensome. Um, our employees have to um, sit for all these interviews as they write up you know, police reports. Sometimes they have to go to court. We have to take the, um, the merchandise out of circulation uh, and keep it as evidence in the case um, so we can't move it off the shelves. Right. Um, so the retailers like it. And, and a lot of uh, police departments and, and prosecutors really like it too. Not 100%, but a lot of them. Um, because uh, it, it has reduced the number of calls. So there are these interesting sort of um, exposés that have been done about how many calls to the police some Walmart stores generate um, when they're not working with a company like CEC. Um, and most of those calls, not all, but most of those calls um, relate to shoplifting. And um, there's a, a newspaper article I remember I read um, where the, the journalists reviewed police records and found that when uh, these Walmart stores in Texas decided to team up with CEC, um, that the uh, police calls dropped by somewhere between 30 and 70 percent. Um, and the police like it because they say, come on, you know, yes, shoplifting is bad, but compared to other crimes, it's kind of a ticky-tack offense. And we'd rather use our resources uh, to, to do other kinds of policing, not to keep coming to Walmart over and over and over. Some police departments had assigned an officer to sit at the Walmart. There was a guy in one of these stories that they called Officer Walmart because all he did all day was process shoplifters from Walmart. And so, um, you know, there's a chance here and I know I, I had my cynical hat on earlier, and now I'm going to maybe strike some people as a as a hopeless optimist. Um, but there's a chance here that we really have a win-win-win. That you know it's better for the suspect uh, to pay the $400, $500 than to get an arrest record. It's better for the retailer um, because it consumes fewer resources, and it's better for the police because it consumes fewer of their resources and allows them to focus on on bigger problems. So I want to get to some of your reservations and uh, drawbacks because you were just optimistic for for too long there for a second so I want to just get <laughs> I want to get our um, cynic hats on for one more uh, one more time just so that we sort of cover both sides of this so what are yep. your reservations okay so um, first of all I think we want to be really wary of exactly what is being communicated to suspects when they're in that uh, loss prevention room in the back of the store. Um, if we had reason to think that the security guards were sort of uh, misleading suspects about the severity of the so-called public option, you know, of, of turning down CEC, um, and, you know, I mean, to, to dramatize the point, you know, if the security guards were saying, well, you know, if you don't take this deal, you could get the death penalty for shoplifting, you know. Uh, well, then, okay, I, I think we, we start to worry a lot 
um, about uh, the nature of these contracts. Um, I think we also want to be really careful about a point that you raised earlier, which is um, sort of the potential disparate effects um, of these programs, um, because it's, it really is a black box. And this is one place where I think, okay, I do care about transparency. Um, when people are going through the public criminal justice system, um, we can track data about uh, their identities. We know how many men, how many women are going through, how many black people, how many white people, um, and so on. Um, and if things start to look way out of whack to us, we can talk about that. Um, I don't think we have that kind of data here, and that concerns me. And I think that um, one uh, thing that states should be thinking about doing is requiring at least some form of aggregate data reporting um, from these companies so that we have a sense of um, what this population that previously might have gone through the criminal justice system um, really looks like. On the subject of, of, of uh, poor people, I thought it would also, uh, we should clarify that 400 to $500 um, is probably uh, equal to or less or less than the cost of being involved with the criminal justice system. Because um, it seems like a lot of money, but when you add up fines and fees, my understanding um, is that people end up paying at least that uh, by being involved with the system. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm frankly glad you brought up the point. There's been some really interesting work on this, um, especially in recent years. Laura Appleman and others have articles about this. Um, uh, Beth Colgan, um, there is a, a fine and a fee for everything today. Um, there are arrest fees. Um, even if it turns out you were you know, wrongfully arrested and they release you, you don't get your money back. There's an arrest fee, there's a booking fee, there's a public defender application fee. Um, if you then use a public defender, uh, you might have to uh, uh, recoup, uh, help the state recoup its costs by reimbursing uh, uh, the state for services received for your if you free attorney <laughs> yeah exactly so um this is uh, really i think kind of a scandal and um, a point that's really missed um in some of the sort of uh, more surface level coverage of these private companies this idea that like four hundred dollars you know that's a ton of money to a poor person it is a ton of money to a poor person but it's it's not necessarily more money and in fact i suspect it might be less money than the public system tries to extract from the same individuals. So um, one question I had around these programs or concern would be that um, would be that it also strips discretion away from store employees to, to just kind of let people go, right? So mm -hmm. I, you know, I imagine there were situations um, where you catch someone shoplifting, it wasn't really that serious. You didn't want them to experience, you know, all the terrible things that you've described in the criminal yep. um, legal system. And so the store guy would say, well, you know, put the whatever back and just head out of the store. And now that person is stuck in this new middle ground where they're paying 400 to $500. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, so I have a couple thoughts on that. Um, I, I share some of the same concern. Um, I then immediately have the thought that, well, you know, with discretion always runs 
the opportunity to discriminate. So partly I like the idea that the criteria for extending mercy are set at the at the corporate level at the wholesale level so you know the the, the companies the retailers are uh, allowed to say and i think do sometimes say um all right if, if the item value is less than 20 bucks you know don't even bother referring them to cec um just let them go um and that's that the decision is made at the corporate level so you're not going to get if everyone's playing by the rules um, you're not going to get a scenario where uh, the security guard is just, you know, uh, extends mercy to, you know, the in-group, to people like him, to white people, to, to men, to wealthy people, or, or, or what have you. Um, so, you know, limiting discretion uh, could prevent some exercises of mercy, and it can also prevent um, some discrimination. Uh, or some discriminatory exercises of mercy. And then there's also the point, and this is, I think the facts here are somewhat fuzzier, um, but you know, some of the retailers I'm told by CEC basically try to, to replicate exactly what they were doing beforehand. So, um, you know, they, they say, we do not want to turn over to CEC anyone on whom we would not have called the police earlier. And that's how they define their criteria. Now, I don't necessarily sort of know that to be true. And even when it's true, I don't know how ubiquitous that practice is, but CEZ tells me that that's how some retailers um, set this up. I guess the final point I'll make on this question is um, that in the end, I think the thrust of, of your question might be true, which is that we might be seeing a slight widening of the net here. And so um, that might concern us because if, if you think that the main problem with the criminal law is not you know, uh, um, under enforcement, but over enforcement, why would you wanna widen the net even further? Well, you know, that does trouble me. I think you also have to, uh, this is gonna, I'm gonna, really thrash this metaphor, but you know, you have to look at sort of the thickness of the net too. And, and, um, the net is widening a little bit, but the, you know, the punishment is, uh, is less severe. So you're paying the $400 instead of, um, the expected sanctions that you'd receive through the public system. So I, in the aggregate, it's a little bit hard to say whether society is better off the marginal person who gets sent to CEC when previously he would have just been turned out onto the street. Okay, that person's not gonna like it. But in the aggregate, if you have a slightly larger group receiving some punishment, but the punishment that each person is receiving is lower, then we might like it from a societal perspective. And I, you know, that's a little bit indeterminate, but that's the best I can do with it right now. All right, well, I think we'll leave it there. Um, I imagine that, that folks will be puzzling this over the same way I have since I started um, reading about this because it hurts my brain. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but thank no, you so much. It's just complicated and, and, and not everything has a simple answer. And I think this is one of them. I agree. Yeah. Um, great. Well, uh, I will let you get back to your busy life. Um, thank you so much again. Yeah, I really appreciate it. 
Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this episode. As always, please remember to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to this on. We're actually growing a fair bit and it's all from your referrals and your reviews. So it is really helpful and really appreciated. Also appreciated are the folks at Poddington Bear who compose our theme music. And of course, Brooke Hopkins and Anna White from the Criminal Justice Policy Program. And if you have any thoughts, ideas for the podcast, please email us at voirdearpodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, take care.